0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Value Guys Stock Talk Show with the Value Guys. I'm Val Hughes, and I'm a 40-year Wall Street veteran who's had to take on a secret identity and go underground in order to provide a couple of candid ideas here on the show each week. You've seen our faces on TV. You've seen us quoted in the news, but our bosses would never allow our unfiltered views on the air, so we've disguised our voices, and they'll never know. This week, we have three exciting medium stock ideas, as well as um, a little bit of stock market update, uh, a little bit of uh, revisiting some fast past picks, and a little bit of Wall Street news. Uh, but before we get to that, a couple of important caveats. First, this show is for entertainment purposes only that's not a guarantee secondly uh, Mo and I are professional analysts and money managers during the week we do a lot of careful analysis we talk to management teams we do modeling etc we've done absolutely none of that here uh, Third um, we do not have your interests in mind our attorneys remind us to tell you we only have our own greedy interests in mind and fourth Uh, and I'll speak for myself because Mo isn't even here, Uh, I've been heavily drinking. See all our caveats, disclosures, pictures our moms took at www.thevalueguys.com. So, it's August 31st, 2020, summer, I know we missed a show last week, uh, uh, both Val and Mo are on the road. Only I had internet access. Mo is—he's um, training. He's ranking very high on an national bike racing team. So he's off uh, improving his uh, blood oxygen levels or something. And so I'm just here in the shop, basically by myself, left to my own devices. Um, it's summer, so I've done. Uh, Actually, I had a little time, so I did a little more work than usual uh, this week, Um, and I was also then, of course, drinking a little more than usual. But let's see what happens. It's the end of the month, which is nice. We put up some numbers today in the shop. Uh, You know, institutional investors at one time only really captured quarterly numbers. Now we're, you know, everyone's capturing monthly numbers, which, of course, is better. But you know, since this is a stock market show, uh, presumably, uh, let me give some stock market uh, information. Okay, so here it is, August 31st. This data is updated through today. Um, What's the biggest stock market index we can look at? Well, the Wilshire 5000. That's pretty big. 5,000 things in it. Um, I don't think it's international, um, but it's, You know, got to be almost every, um, you know, non-bankrupt public company in America. And year-to-date, that's up 9%. Okay. One year, 21%. Again, for all the worry that everyone felt in March, we've had a pretty good year in the broad indices. The S&P 500 total return, which is... um, You know, 10% of the stocks, but is actively chosen by a pretty good committee. And they are, um, that is up 10% year-to-date, and 19, I'm sorry, 23.9 for one year. So the S&P 500 and the Wilshire 5000, very much in sync. The three-month on both of those, 16.5 for the Wilshire, 16.3 for... For the S&P, I mean, you know, it, it's it's been uh, uh, one of the fastest recoveries in history, and I think in part it's because uh, the end game is so well defined um, in terms of how it's unfolding. Um, other indices that you might be a little surprised about. Well, here's something that really surprised me. Again, the topic being stock market. The S&P 500 um, includes the S&P 400 Industrials and then a bunch of utilities transportation and financials again I'm thinking back to when I used to know more about this index but the S&P 400 when I got in the business that was the main index you got all the data the revenue the margins it all held together they were all industrials when you started mixing in banks and utilities and such the numbers weren't so comparable so as an analyst just looking you know to answer the question is my company better than average you know you wouldn't look at the S&P 500 because it had banks which are very heavily levered messes up all the numbers um, or you have utilities that are always high multiple because they're low yield. It messes up all the valuations, so you don't tend to look at it. Now here's the curious thing: I just mentioned the S&P 500 and the Wilshire 5000, both up, you know, roughly 10, 9% percent year to date, and not twenty percent, um, over twenty percent for one year. The S&P 400 Industrials which is just the S&P 500 minus financials, utilities, and uh, probably uh, something else in there. What did I say? Financials, utilities, and um, could be some tech as well. You know, that's not necessarily industrial. They did a big reclassification a couple years ago of what was an industrial, what was a tech, what was a retailer, and they started moving things around. Uh, so, for example, Apple, I don't believe, is a tech company anymore. I believe it's a retail company. Amazon, retail, uh, things like that. Facebook, not tech, advertising. So they did all this recal- you know, recalibration. But what's curious is the S&P 400, year-to-date is down 1.4, the S&P 500 up 10. And I think what that does is it just illustrates... Um, you know, the difference between some of these sectors, particularly tech um, and, uh, and non-tech uh, during this period. So that's one to go do some homework on and get educated around that. The other thing that continues to be noteworthy is the, the you know, the gap between value and growth. So uh, what I have here is the 2,000, the small caps. The Russell 2,000 total return year-to-date is minus 4.5 compared to the S&P up 10, you know, not great. And so the small cap continue to lag, the large cap, that's been a trend for some time now. But with the minus 4.5 on the Russell 2000, that's broken into two pieces. The Russell 2000 growth is up 6.6. The Russell 2000 value is down 16. And why the... Dichotomy there. Well, again, who knows? But you know what I think is that there's a lot of banks, and uh, in the in the value, and those types of things. You know, with interest rates going down, that's not a good environment for banks. As we talked about last week, the bank sector, all financials, have been some of the most you know poorly performing sectors a year to date. So that helps explain the difference. Um, and I'd say um, we should be moving into a period where value wins, in part because low interest rates—you know—the future, um, you know, matters more. A period of declining rates um, helps growth companies, the valuation, because if they're growing faster and the out years of earnings are bigger and rates are down, the present value of future years discounts to bigger numbers now. That might help explain that. Um, also, the move from active management to market cap-weighted indices is another reason to think um, that those particular names are doing better. You know, growth begets growth. In effect, so uh, there are some forces at work. I do think that we're moving into a period where active management is going to win some converts, just because it's done better during this period, and also um, the, uh, the the big indices at some point, and I don't know when that is. But if active starts gaining share, then the number of shares that are just trading without any concern for valuation because they're in an index, as that declines, um, then valuation should start to matter more. And that's why I think um, we have been in a long period where value is underperformed. Um, You know, interest rates play a part, but I think the bigger piece is the you know, big share gains by passive, which favor market cap weighted indices, which favor momentum, which favors growth. So um, there you have it. I think I might have got a little off topic. I'll give you one more. The NASDAQ up 30% year to date. That's the biggest big index on my screen. Well, I'm sorry, the worst one is the Russell 2000 value, as I already mentioned, minus 16. The next worst one is the S&P 600, which is just a big collection of small caps. So uh, your best bet this year has been the NASDAQ and the large caps. You know, who knows what's out ahead of us, but uh, there you have it. Stock market show, stock market information. How about that? Okay, I also wanted to revisit a couple of names we talked about recently, Why? I don't know. We've been getting some write-ins. People want to hear what we've been talking about. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about Verizon, PFE, 3M. Those were dogs of the Dow. Uh, Raytheon, you know, I still like that. But uh, one we talked about on July 20th, we talked about two names, Walmart and Fastenal. And so why did I pick July 20th? I don't know. You know, Walmart's back in the news as a co-buyer of TikTok, and we talked about Walmart a few weeks ago and how when you compare Walmart to Amazon, the numbers aren't that different. Walmart actually has a higher return on assets. Um, Mo suggested that could be because Amazon is investing, you know, more quickly into more capacity, etc., but it's not exactly clear. But all of a sudden, you got Microsoft and Walmart coming up to buy TikTok. And I don't know how TikTok drives sales, but I think once you have people on mobile with TikTok, it's uh, an easy matter to get them to click on your store button, particularly if it's part of a video. So I think that's a very interesting development. I've done absolutely no homework. I don't know how many viewers TikTok has or anything. And they're all young. Do they even have any money? I mean, I don't know. But um, to the extent that kids are going to be making their parents go into Walmart... You know, that I have seen, and uh, (laughs) if you just have a bunch of TikTok videos saying, hey, make your parents take you to Walmart, then that could be something interesting. But, you know, Mo and I were just talking about Walmart being a giant behemoth that can pretty much do what they want, and if they buy TikTok, um, that brings them some mobile users that are too young now But just like the Disney plan or the Huggies plan or Kimberly Clark, you know, these kids, these people you acquire young, you get them for life. And so that might be a very smart strategy. So I'd uh, encourage you to go revisit that show July 20. The other one, and by the way, Walmart is up 5% since then. Does that matter? No, but it's fun to say. Anyway, and then the other one we talked about, on that particular show was Fastenal, F A S T, and you know, up nine percent. Does that always happen? Almost never. But hey, there's one that worked out for the value guys. But we're, you know, really when I recommend a stock, I'm talking about a three-year hold. Just so you guys know, um, the fact that it's up nine percent um, or down, you know, doesn't even matter to me unless there's been some news. Um, that affects earnings. And so right now we're in the midst of earnings season. There are some you know new reports hitting. you can draw some conclusions from fast and all. In fact, one of the names I'm going to talk about today is a is a cousin of Fastenal. and all. but um, okay, so there is a, a little revisit of some past names. How about that? It's pretty fun. And then um, I also wanted to touch on just a little news, just a little bit, which is, I see that both Tesla. We had a long conversation in the shop today about Tesla. Evidently, it's you know the only company of its size that you know we don't own or wouldn't own um, in our large cap. And um, you know this four for one split is pretty interesting. I looked up some of the stats here on Tesla and Apple. Apple's also doing a split. And I think the thing I just want to mention to those of you that are retail investors is that a stock split does not change the value of what you own um, with the caveat that unless people think it does. In other words, a company has a value when there's a four-for-one stock split the, you get, you know, you now have four times as many shares, but the value is one fourth, so that's the same value. Now, what sometimes happens, and it's strictly a you know odd element of retail investing, is that when you get more shares, you feel good, and so you bid up the stock. It's a weird phenomenon. I've seen this go on. There was a company years ago, Coldwater Creek. CWTR, they're bankrupt now, and I covered it. The CEO had this notion that he kept doing three for twos because, you know, people are used to the stock at twelve and they take it up to eighteen. So when it got to eighteen, he'd do a three for two. It's back to twelve. It gets, but the earnings are not going up. It's it's uh, at the same ratio as the share. Growth, but sometimes you get retail people thinking that they have more shares. It's confidence that management's exhibiting, and so they want to buy more stock. That particular name ended up bankrupt. Now I don't know that the stock split itself is going to bankrupt Apple <laughs> or Tesla, because um, in the case of Apple, they they have a bit of cash on hand. And in the case of Tesla, they're super valuable. So uh, my main message was that these stock splits do not change the value, but they might change some kind of, uh, you know, sense of, of management's uh, confidence in the future, and to that extent, they might help the PE a little bit. I mean, clearly, that's what um, Elon, Musk's, Elon Musk thinks is going to happen. In the case of Apple, I think they just want to make this stock a little bit more affordable, and uh, and so that's fine. So I just wanted to weigh in on that. Okay, well, that's that's the front of the show, I guess. Now let's get to the meat, the meat of the show. Three pretty medium stock ideas. Uh, hope we shoot for better than that. I just want you to know, shoot for better than medium. But if we get medium, you know, that's not so terrible. Okay, as longtime listeners know, I like to go and just do screens. I don't want to keep doing the same screen. Do a bunch of different screens and do screens that sort of make sense, but then do some that make no sense. You don't want to get hung up on accidentally repeating a screen that never works and never will work. So it's good to mix them up, get different names in your inbox, and then go through them by hand. It's a craft. And uh, there's a lot of rules-based guys out there. They're called passive investors. And the word passive, if you're serious about stocks, you don't want to be called passive. I mean, who wants that? Hey, how's Johnny doing? Oh, he's passive. What? No. Uh, So just if you like stocks, um, then um, I think you certainly can go and look at what, you know, smart people are buying, and you can go to Edgar. It's pretty free, I think, and you can see what people own. Um, and then, you know, the smart ones, you can see what they're doing. But screens are pretty good, too. Best returns, lowest PEs, etc. This week, I tried to do something a little different, which was I wanted to go and just look at all the IPOs of the last year that are down for the year. You know, you just heard me say the S&P is up 20%, the uh, Wilshire 5000 up 20%. So an IPO that's down, maybe that's an opportunity. So I went and looked at all the IPOs that were down that were U.S. headquartered companies, and I'm just going to say it's dregs. It's dregs, you know. There were a lot of IPOs that came out under the same assumptions that Uber came out, which is, oh, we don't need to make any money. We're going to scale this thing. And, you know, everyone points to Amazon. But the thing is, Amazon was creating a low-cost solution, a dominant, biggest market share, low-cost transportation distribution system. And these other companies, um, it's not clear they're, they're doing that, you know. Um, I think in the case of Uber, there's a lot of analysts who, Believe, and I've read the materials that they'll never be profitable until there are driverless cars. That's a ways off. Um, in the case of WeWork, you know, one of the things that went wrong there was there was there were no economies of scale. I mean, the definition of that is simply the next dollar of stuff you sell, the margins are a lot higher than your average margin, and as you get bigger, your your margins are going up. Economies of scale in the case of we work no economies of scale IPO canceled they're not making money so a lot of these negative IPOs i think just the market sentiment on uh, you know wanting to give big checks to companies that are losing money i think people just decided not to do that anymore for a while so the only one in there i would go and look at and this is just a freebie i'm not even i didn't even do any work on it but the only one i read about it and uh, it's Albertsons, the grocery store, okay? Now, the problem is, of course, they have a lot of debt. It's a roll-up. I might have talked about this at one time, um, but they it's, it's groceries. So they're a little behind the eight ball, perhaps, uh, relative to, uh, you know, Amazon and Walmart and even Target. But there's places in the country where you go to Albertsons, and uh, that might be, you know, worth taking a look at. Um, So, uh, but in any case, so this IPO screen turned out terrible. It's all bad companies. So I went back to the drawing board and I simply did one of my go-to screens, which is um, better than average profitability and lower than average valuation. So, for example, lower than average P.E., For its industry, that's how these came out. Lower than average price to sales for the industry, lower than average price to book, greater than average return on equity, and greater than average return on assets, greater than average profit margin last quarter. What could be simpler than that? And then I say uh, U.S. headquarters. I mean, there's thousands of companies. There's no market cap filter on here. 21 companies get through that screen. It's unbelievable. That's the power of a screen, really. And as, again, longtime listeners have heard me say, what's the best thing about a screen? Well, these stocks all got through the screen. And it's a pretty sensible screen. Also, a better-than-average dividend yield, if I didn't mention that. So 20 companies come through here. And, um, you know, if you want to go do your own homework, I'll mention them. I don't know what a lot of these guys do. Avient, Intel, which, by the way, the uh, innovators, I, just reading it, it's a wonderful book. It has a whole section on Intel and uh, Robert Noyce and his team. Walmart makes this list. We already talked about that. Lamar Advertising is here as a REIT. So I think that's billboards. Not sure. Um... Too expensive for me right now, anyway. Uh, National instruments, software, um, eh, could be something, you know, I don't know, didn't really grab me. Um, That might take a little homework, figure out what they do, national instruments, I don't know. Gaming and leisure properties, real estate, a REIT. You know it's 19 times earnings, which again flip it around 20 times. That's a 5% yield, and on a REIT, you know I believe the rule is they got to pay out 90 or 95% of cash flow to be a REIT, and uh, and then they don't pay taxes because they pass it all through. The dividend yield on this thing is 8.75%. Now these REITs always look super expensive because they're priced on yield. And so for that reason you, you know you have to stomach what looks like a high PE or price sales. This one is seven times, which seems high. Return on equity, 19, et cetera. So I'm not even doing this one. I'm just looking at the data. Gaming and leisure properties, very interesting. Then um, energy, noble midstream, eh, no thank you. Uh, Quest Diagnostics, healthcare. I mean they do testing. That's always been a you know a name that hits my radar. I've owned it in the past. Not so interested right now. Oil dry. They do cat litter, etc. There's a few other things in here. Real estate, utilities. Anyway, there's three on this list that I came up with. Uh, the the view that they're worth taking a, a, a deeper dive on for you guys. One is Timken, T K R. They're an industrial. They make uh, tools. Accessories, powertrains, and primarily bearings, ball bearings. MDC Holdings, which is a construction company, home builder. And then um, the other one I wanted to do was MSM, which is MSC Industrial Direct, which is industrial distribution, which is, uh, again, um, uh, they're a competitor to Fastenal but they have, you know, slightly different products, a lot of overlap, and slightly different size customers, um, but it's such a fragmented industry that they are, MSC is, is one of the largest ones. So let me go um, alphabetically, you know, why not? I think uh, there's a precedent for that. Phil invented that. And so let's see. What comes first here? Now, MSC, the ticker is MSM. Hmm. That makes it a little more complicated, except that MDC beats it. Okay, there we go. So MDC, let me pop on this for you here. MDC is a home builder. They're based in Denver. Um, They also do mortgages, insurance. They'll sell you all kinds of stuff related to your home, everything. They build homes in Colorado, Florida, Virginia, Nevada, Utah, and Washington. One of the things that's unique about these guys, and I like, I've always liked, because we've owned this in the past, um, is that they do not build on speculation. They build to order, so they have fewer canceled contracts, they have... Uh, fewer, you know, needs to discount, and like right now, I just read their transcript from the last quarterly call, they have, out of the thousands and thousands of homes that they're selling each year, they have 100 that are not sold right now, Um, because, uh, you know, at the last minute, some people do walk away, but it's among the smallest numbers in the industry. And the fact that they don't buy speculative land, I think, gives them a big advantage when the entire country right now is rethinking where they're going to live, where they're going to migrate, what have you. And the fact that these guys can build homes where people want to live and they can track all that, I think, is a great strength for them. Um, Their numbers historically are... You know, very strong. So, in 2019, they had 3.3 billion in sales. In 2010, they had 957, um, and they've just been growing every year since then. They did have a tough time in 2018. I'm sorry, 20 you know 08 and 09. So, just to give you an idea, they had uh, in 04, 05, and 06, they were up toward 5 billion in sales. And in 2009, they did 900 million. So they lost enormous sums, um, not as much as you'd think. So in their peak year of 2005, they made 800 million operating, 400 the next year. And then in 2008, they lost 100. In 2009, they lost 50. So yeah, they lost some. But as they're going into these periods, and then they lost a little more in 2010, they didn't turn profitable again. Until 2012. So, um, and then they did 30 million, 100 million, 100, 100, 150, 170, 260, 280. So uh, they're on track, um, you know, to continue to do well. And the thing that's interesting about them is that, um, you know, they're apt to be gaining market share during this period because the smaller builders are likely to. Um, have more trouble getting going, you know, just from a from a credit point of view. Uh, demand is very strong. Uh, backlog is growing, um, but sometimes that takes bank loans. And so I have a feeling that with such a strong demand for materials, um, the demand from the marketplace is really stripping the supply. That it's going to be your bigger companies that are advantaged in terms of creating the supply uh, for their own customers, and the smaller guys are going to get left behind. At least that's what I think. So, on the valuation side, um, it's 10 times earnings. The industry is priced a little higher. That's kind of how it gets through the screen. Um, on a uh, enterprise value to EBITDA basis, it's. It's it's nine and a half, but it trades higher than that, and I think it will again, particularly with these low rates. Um, and so, you know, that looks pretty good on an enterprise value to revenue. It's below one, and historically speaking, it peaks out much higher. It can get to one five or even two at the peak. So. There's a lot of upside here. Um, In terms of the historical profitability of MDC, you know, these guys, because they don't have discounting and they've got good locations, you know, they put up some very good numbers. Their return on assets is 8%. It's just been steadily growing five years. It peaked out a bit higher, and of course, in 09 they lost money. But back in the last cycle, they got this up into the mid-teens, and it could be that they're on track for that again. Again, return on capital, nice steady growth. Revenue, nice steady growth. Um, debt to EBITDA is three, so I don't love that, but I do think they have stuff uh, that can sell, which is home inventory, lumber, and stuff like that. It doesn't go out of style. So I don't think there's much risk to your inventory. And to the extent the debt is for uh, inventory and work you know, materials um, in process, then I think we're going to be okay on that. Um, what else can I tell you here? I mean, the market cap is $2.7 billion. That's right at the toward the peak. And if this gets much bigger, you know, it, it does have a chance to start to get into large cap land. And then again, you know, I'm not a giant fan of passive investing, but if this gets up into large cap land and manages to get into an index or two, that could be another, another level of growth for this one. So MDC Holdings, ticker MDC, I think it's worth a look. You got housing going. It's a good price and uh, I think uh, over the next three years, you'll do well in that one. Um, Okay, what else do I have? Let's see. I'm going alphabetical. So MDC, let's see here, MSC. Okay. MSC, what do they do? Well, why am I attracted to these distributors in the first place? Well, because... They're the ones that get everything done. Let's face it. If you're a scientist, you've invented something or you, you know, you're a guy you know how to make stuff. Where are you going to get all the stuff for it? You call your industrial distributor. Not only do they have the parts, but they have engineers. They they really badly want to design their stuff into your product. So they're happy to send a guy over to help you do that. It's like free help as long as you use their stuff. And they've got billions of products. And uh, I think, again, as you put pressure on small business, both with capital, um, as you eliminate all the parts that come out of China, I mean, who's going to be tasked with replacing all that stuff for you know, production lines? Well, it's going to be the distributors. It'll be, hey, Johnny, I need a, a Johnson rod. Go find me one. And, and when they go and do that, they get a pretty nice price. That's the other thing about these distributors is if your machine is broken and you call your distributor to, you know, repair it, uh, I can tell you that part that you need to get your machine going again is going to be not cheap. So, um, uh, you know, th- they, they may appear to have margins that are... Um, just trying to pull up the the number here. Um, you know, they may appear to have margins that are not too high. So let me just get the number here for you. Um, yeah. So net margin eight. Okay. Well, actually, that's not too bad at all. It reflects the value of what these guys are doing. The pre tax margins here, right 10, 11, 12% like clockwork. It's almost like a markup strategy. Gross profit is between 42 and 43.8. So that is managed. That's managed. And so I think what we see here is your cost of goods is, let's say, 60, and you're charging 100. So that's a two-thirds markup. It's a 66% markup on your cost of goods. It's it's almost like the formula, and I wouldn't doubt it. You get these giant companies run by people that have been doing it for years They just go, hey, Jimmy, we're just going to mark, just raise it by 67%. It looks like, seriously, that's what they're doing. The EBITDA margins here are mid-teens. Again, that's telling you, that for people that just put stuff on a truck and move it around, what have you, they're providing a lot of value added in this whole engineering area for their customers, and they're obviously getting paid for it. One of the things I really like about these companies, these industrial distributors, is they just continuously grow. They're very consistently growing, and... um, now, I just said that, and of course, <laughs> these guys are flat, okay, well, I mean, they're up a little bit, they're flattish. I think what happened here over the last few years is they just quite likely have a disproportionate amount of their business in the oil patch with prices coming down, demand is coming down um, so let's see in uh Yeah, I mean, a couple of years ago, they were running about 600, 700 million a quarter, and now we're running 800 million a quarter. So, you know, it comes every couple of quarters, but they are kind of growing it a bit, but slowly. I'd say it's probably a GDP type of grower here. EBITDA, again, growing very slowly, and I like that. Let's see, the balance sheet here is in very good shape. That's another thing I like about it. Hold on here. My internet's going bad. Apologize. What the hell? Okay, so the balance sheet is getting a little bit worse each quarter. Well, I thought it was share buybacks, but it's not. They do continue to raise the dividend. So on this one right now, there is... A I think there is a little bit of a yield here. Let's see. Looking for it. Yeah, we've got a 4.5% yield, which is pretty good. Um, Altman Z-Score, which you've heard me talk about, the risk of bankruptcy here is really non-existent. And um, the other thing I want to mention on this one is um, there's this resource called Seeking Alpha, which I've mentioned before. But one of the things they have that's pretty cool is... Um, most companies, when they do earnings, they put up a very nice slideshow. It's free. In some cases, the Wall Street analysts, you know they're busy really selling stuff. So they don't tend to get much more information than this. I mean again when you know you look through this, you'll jot down your questions, you'll call management. But if you really want to see what's going on, I'm just looking in here at MSC, they have a very nice, presentation it's just five slides these guys put it out at earnings just to sort of highlight what they're doing and um, you know the fact is they held up pretty well revenues were down just a little bit less than five percent um, earnings per share were down four cents from a buck 44 to a buck 40 um, you know you just can't really ask them to do better than that. The other thing I want to mention about MSC is just their consistently good return on assets. So 11% in this most recent quarter, it spiked up to 13, 14. Last year, uh, you know, was around 10 a few years ago, but it spiked up into the 16, 20 range. The worst it's been, even in 09 was around where it is now 11%. In 0 Four. They got down to a low number. I honestly, that's a long time ago. Return on invested capital also running thirteen percent. Rarely gets below that. It peaked at twenty three, and you know that was the peak of oil prices, probably back in twenty thirteen. Um, so these numbers are really pretty strong. The cash position here is very high. I think they just took on some debt in order to you know bolster their balance sheets so they borrowed some money, raised their cash balances. I think that's pretty smart. Um in this period, they'll probably unwind that, be my guess. Their profit margins have been running around 9, very stable. Their operating margin has gone from 13 to 11, but with the profit margin steady at 9, I just got to think that something that was in between Profit margin and operating margin, so depreciation, amortization, something like that, um, kicked in um, in some fashion that would explain you know, how one's going down and, and one isn't. Um, to think a little about that. And, uh, of course, some companies report that slightly different as well. PE right now is on a On an eight-year low, it's 14. I like to look at the inverse of that, 7%. That's net because I'm looking at a PE. Um, When I'm looking at enterprise value to EBITDA, this is 10, so the cash-on-cash there is 10%, plus you're going to get GDP growth here, but nominal, bear in mind, not real, because um, companies are nominal. So that's 10% plus, let's say, 5%, 4% GDP growth. I'm up in the, you know, 14% range, which is pretty good for a stable industrial distributor. MSC Industrial, ticker MSM. That's all I have on that one. And then um, I got one more. I'm getting very sleepy. I know... Uh, I didn't get a show up last week. I I honestly almost killed myself on my uh, trip to Colorado. Uh, I got just flown off a bike and crashed. and uh, Fortunately, um, it didn't seem to injure anything. I got very lucky on that. But I took a week off. And so here we are. I really feel like I want to get one more out there, which is uh, Timken, ticker T-K-R, Timken. Now, what does Timken do? Well, it's a pretty cool company, let me tell you. First, the ticker is Ticker, T-K-R, so that's pretty cool. But they, here's what they say they do. They manufacture bearings, gear belts, chain-related products. And they sell their portfolio of bearings, including tapered, spherical, and cylindrical. I can't even say that. And thrust and ball bearings through a network of authorized dealers. Okay. Well, again, doing a little more work than usual this week. I actually went to their annual report. Because this is a really cool company. You know, bearings carry the weight of everything. Trains, planes, buses, uh, other things. You know, the bearings, they bear the weight. This stuff is so highly engineered. um, And I'm going to guess, it doesn't say that here, but that they have the highest market share of these things. 70% of their business is engineered bearings. And to me, that says farm equipment, uh, highway equipment, everything, trains, particularly. Um, Okay. 56% of what they do is to, you know, OEMs that make the equipment. 44% is aftermarket, and that's a pretty lucrative. business. And so I always like seeing aftermarket. The company, you know, they had a period here where um, things weren't so great. Just took a few notes here. But they maintained 20% EBITDA margins, even though sales, let's see, I thought I wrote this down here. I think sales were down now this is one where Timken has a really nice presentation. Um, it's about 15 pages, and you can just see what a great little company this is. So OK, so sales were down, that's what I thought, down 20 percent, from a billion to 800 million. But EBITDA margin went up from 19 to 20 percent. Just tells you how disciplined these guys are in quickly cutting costs. Now they would say it's temporary because they cut salaries, they furloughed some workers, but that's a very nice and rapid response. You know, uh, the company historically, I mean, they're cyclical, but you know, in the last seven years, their EBITDA margins have been between fourteen and a half and nineteen. They're uh, ROIC, return on invested capital, between 9 and 13. Those are very good numbers. And, um, you know, the only thing I would say is that their, their debt to EBITDA is, um, is pretty good. It's 2, less than 2, and uh, the Altman score here is 2.6, so that's pretty good. So really great products, really good returns. The valuation here, again, the market's been predicting recession for a long time and has been wrong for a long time until recently, which, you know, was not the one that was predicted. Um, but these guys, right now, their P.E., is 13 again you flip that around 8% or what have you cash on cash net cuz it's pe enterprise value to ebitda it's 9 i flip that around i've got an 11% cash on cash return and timkin gdp nominal 5% you know i'm up in the i'm up in the 15 16% which is a pretty good number i would say um You know, I wish if Mo were here, he could tell you a little more about the the chart. I will say that in March, the low, this was at 28. Now it's at 54. So, you know, the thing about investing is you can't ever go and say, oh, I wish I would have bought it then. There's a thing called sunk cost. You can't buy it then. So would you buy it now? And the answer to this one is... This sling looks very interesting. In fact, in January, it was at 56. Now it's at 54. The big cap space year-to-date is up. This one's down. So I could argue that even though it is up a lot off the low, it's still, you know, not too bad right here. Timken TKR. And I'm sure I've missed a lot of important stuff on that, but I would do your own homework, take a look at that. Great old mime name. Okay, well, the show is really getting long, and I apologize for that. Um, Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Walking Through National Economic Trends. Okay, we're back, everybody. Hope you had uh, some big activities during the break. Um, I did nothing. I just want to be honest. I just sat here. So uh, National Economic Trends, as longtime listeners know, I love looking at Fred. In fact, just throw your television out. Fred, everything you want is in there. Uh, Pretty much. I mean, there might be a few things that you don't get. But, um, and what I've been doing in Fred is just sort of poking around and and trying to bring some relevant information to listeners. So, for example, last week, there's a tab in here. I don't want to do too much, but latest releases. So, if you get nothing else on the show, you get some of the latest releases from the Fed, which, of course, you could click yourself, but... We're clicking for you here. So, what do we have? Two things. Actually, one is of interest, but I have two. Um, so, the one that is of less interest, I'd say, is um, one of the most recent things they put out. I'm just looking for it here. Bear with me. Um, one of the most latest, one of the latest releases they put out was something called Recession Indicators Series. And I talked about this a few weeks ago. It's a very funny series that is either zero or one. And if it's zero... And it goes back to December 1854. So the NBER, which I believe is the National Bureau of Economic Research... They're the ones that decide, with you know, when the recessions start and end. And typically, they tell you that it started quite a bit after it's ended. I mean, historically speaking, I think they're a little quicker this time. But um, their series is either one or zero. It's hysterical. So guess what? It's at one. So take that note down because here the Fed is saying one. We're in a recession right now. So that's. The recession indicator series, you heard it here, it's one. It means we're in a recession. Okay, well, who knew that? Now, um, the other piece of information I wanted to touch on here was the 10-year Treasury constant maturity minus the two-year Treasury constant maturity. This is largely seen as the slope of the yield curve. It's quoted all the time. And if you seem to recall hearing about it, it's because back in 2019, that's all they would talk about, was the negative yield curve. In fact, this dipped negative for, let's see here, exactly one year ago, August 30th, August 29th, 2019, this thing was negative, which they claimed, people claim that predicts recession. But I think uh, what it predicts is uh, pandemics because um, there has been a recession. It was predicted by the negative yield curve. It happened because of a pandemic, not because of a negative yield curve, and yet now it's predictive. It's just one of those odd things. And since that time... So in August 2019, exactly one year ago, was predicting recession. But then it's just been going up since then. So right now, August 28th, 2020, a year later, the spread is 0.6. And the last time it was at 0.6 was in March of 2018. So, you know, that's a long time ago. And um, if I go back before that... Um, you know, you got to get back to 07, 06. uh, you know, that's when it predicted that recession in 08, 09, two years in advance, I don't know how valuable that is. And then back in 2000, it went negative, May 2000, and that recession came in, in, uh, sort of March 2000. One, although we didn't know it, and it really seemed like 9-11 that sent us into that recession, but the NBER, which decided years later when the recession started, they pushed it back to April of 01. And I kind of remember that, um, you know, kind of waiting, we were all waiting for something to happen because commodities were going up a lot it it seemed like companies were having more trouble etc so in any case this 10-year minus two-year treasury no longer predicting a recession but evidently for reasons that have nothing to do with why people think it's predictive it actually did predict the recession uh, that that other series now says we're we're in so i thought that was um very interesting um And then the final thing that I wanted to talk about uh, from Fred was... And this is pretty interesting. Again, if people want to figure out what the hell is going on and what the future might hold, they just put up a working paper. So there is a tab called Working Papers. I encourage you to take a look at it. Sometimes there's very interesting stuff in there. And so the first two things they have in there, recent working papers, home production and leisure during COVID nineteen, and um, and they basically are saying that you know average weekly hours dropped by six. You know, so we were probably around. It doesn't. I you know, I, mean, I just have the summary here, but I'm going to guess we were around thirty eight. Now we're thirty two. That's a big decline. But we got again, according to these guys, we got something like two of that back because we weren't commuting. And, uh, and then also because we weren't commuting, we got more leisure. What else? Did we lose weight and get more handsome? No. So it didn't do everything. But according to these guys, the COVID uh, lockdown, you know, not counting all the people that, you know, lost everything. But for the economy overall, again, we've talked about this, the people that got harmed were, you know, wants, not needs, And consumers uh, simply have shifted their discretionary spending away from some of the things that they chose to other things. And it's the weirdest recession we've ever had because of that. And uh, this paper tries to outline some of the positives. It looks like it's uh, a reasonable read. Again, if you want to be smarter than than your friends about this sort of thing, It's free, and it's at the Federal Reserve. The other one uh, that is sort of on the same topic is labor market policies. So getting into, um, you know, exactly what's happening uh, within companies to optimize, you know, the census of employees, et cetera. This one doesn't look nearly as interesting at all. I completely avoid it. And there's a few other things in here. There's a paper where they examine Paul Volcker's history of beating inflation back in 79 when it got to literally 13%. So a lot of good stuff in there. Anyway, I'm getting super sleepy. I think think that's our show for today. And again, Mo apologizes for not being here. Really wanted to get this one up. Um, So let me give a summary of what's happening. First, we had a stock market section, so clearly stock market show. Uh, What else? Uh, Three pretty good ideas. Timken, um, MDC, and then MSC Industrial. And if I had to pick one of those, which I will, I'm going to pick MDC, the home builder. I think there's a lot of wind at the back of of home building right now, and there's going to be a lot of changes in migratory patterns in the U.S., and I think uh, they're going to be able to take advantage of that. So that's our show, everybody. Um, Please see all of our shows and caveats and photos. I think there's 312 shows out there on iTunes, Spotify, and other podcasting uh, platforms near you. Uh, Visit our website at www w dotthevaluguys dot com. And uh, we'll see you next week. So long, everybody.